0: Hi, my name is Abdullah and I'm the host of Brain Explained, the podcast where we explore the latest neuroscience research and the individuals behind it, providing you with an insight into the processes involved. Episode five dives into traumatic brain injury, a disease commonly received after too many blows to the head. How can we protect against this and how exactly is it studied in the lab? If that pikes your interest, then be sure to check out this episode, because we cover this and much more. Introduction. Traumatic brain injury, I'll call it TBI from now on, is a disease which is becoming more and more prevalent. Not only that, but it's linked to Alzheimer's disease. In this episode, you learn all about acetylated tau. Think of acetylated tau like a modified protein, which it is. And this is vitality tau is important because it can be used as a marker for TBI. We will be covering a lot about TBI, also Alzheimer's and aging. Stick around to the end as this is an information-packed episode. Welcome to our fifth episode of Brain Explained. Today we have Dr. Andrew Pieper, a researcher at the Harrington Discovery Institute in Cleveland, Ohio, in the USA. Andrew, do you want to tell me a little bit more about yourself?
1: Sure. Thanks, Abdullah. It's nice of you to invite me to be on your podcast. I'm happy to be here. By way of background, I have a a PhD in neuroscience. Um, I trained at Johns Hopkins in the laboratory of uh, Solomon Snyder, who's uh, very well known for many discoveries in the field of neuroscience, uh, including identification of the opiate receptor. And um, I also got my medical degree at Johns Hopkins and did my Residency training in psychiatry at Hopkins as well. Uh, Currently, um, like you mentioned, I'm at the Harrington Discovery Institute in Cleveland, Ohio. It's a part of the University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center. Uh, It's affiliated with also, I'm affiliated with Case Western Reserve University and the Lewis Stokes VA Medical Center here in Cleveland. And I divide my time between my own labs research and My work at the Harrington Discovery Institute, running the Neurotherapeutics Center. And also, I see patients one day a week in the geriatric psychiatry clinic, uh, VA Medical Center.
0: What got you interested in the neurotherapeutic side of research?
1: Unfortunately, the field of neurotherapeutics is behind the rest of medicine in terms of the options that we have for patients. A, A lot of the peripheral disorders, cardiovascular, for example renal etc those physiologic systems have been very well understood for a long time and we have really good medicines that are helping people live a lot longer there's still a lot to be discovered in those areas and a lot of improvements to be made but i want to emphasize that there has been a tremendous amount of progress made in those areas compared to the options that we have for treating patients with any manner of neuropsychiatric disease
0: what got you interested in this area of research as a young Scientist.
1: I was always interested in the brain and I was always interested in psychology and philosophy. When I went to college, I went to a small liberal arts college in Richmond, Indiana, called Earlham College, and I majored in biology and chemistry. And I just really loved science all my life. And I decided to pursue MD, PhD training because. I loved learning about how the body works. I loved learning about the deeper aspects of science, and I wanted to be able to apply those to ultimately help people.
0: And regarding your... What got you interested in this particular area, studying acetylated tau and traumatic brain injury?
1: Well, it's not well known in the popular culture, but traumatic brain injury is actually... Third leading cause of Alzheimer's disease, directly behind genetic risk factors and aging, which are the top two causes of Alzheimer's disease. And as most people know, Alzheimer's disease is going to be an epidemic, rapidly expanding population if we don't find new treatments to help patients. TBI, also in and of itself, is a huge problem for society. Um, It's a chronic condition that is associated with all manner of different progressively worsening neurological symptoms, including cognitive impairment over time, as well as depression, anxiety, and and other psychiatric manifestations. And and so my lab has been focused on these two conditions, mostly because I believe it's the place where we have the chance to make the biggest impact um, in the field, the biggest impact on human health. The specific question about why did we start working on acetylated tau Traces back to a, a scientist in our group, a, a research scientist now who started as a, a postdoctoral fellow named Min Q Shin, who had just been studying the link between TBI and Alzheimer's disease, and had noted that in a paper that hadn't been incredibly well publicized, but was published and solid data showed that in the brains of some people with Alzheimer's disease, that the tau protein had been shown to be acetylated. People weren't quite sure what this did, what were the consequences of it, but given the link between traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's disease, he and I were talking about it and he proposed looking at whether or not this might happen in um, TBI as well, simply because we have a very robust model of TBI in the lab and it was a very direct question to ask and the thinking was that it might be a link between the two. So that's how we got started on that and that was probably about five years ago.
0: What is the common model which is used for traumatic brain
1: injury? Well, there's no perfect model of traumatic brain injury, (laughs) no perfect laboratory model of traumatic brain injury. Uh, And the truth is that most of the people who suffer from a traumatic brain injury, they have very complicated clinical scenario that's not an isolated one specific form of injury. And so um, the model that we use involves aspects of global concussive injury, as well as acceleration-deceleration, as well as a component of the early phase of blast wave exposure. So there's three different modalities of injury. And we model this in in the laboratory by exposing anesthetized mice to a um, the force that's generated when a mylar membrane is burst at a defined distance away from their head. Uh, what and is the
0: mylar membrane?
1: The mylar membrane is just a, a thin membrane that we um, have calibrated to burst at a specific pounds per square inch. So the the mouse is fixed in a holder, its entire body is is shielded from the force with just its head exposed. and then we close the chamber and we increase the pressure on one side to the point where the mylar membrane bursts and that sends a jet of air that causes this very characteristic progressive injury in mice. And so we like the model because it's very reproducible and it progresses over time. And so initially we see that uh, the axons degenerate. And then over the course of time, we've looked at time points as late as 15 months after injury. The injury continues to progress to the point where nerve cells start to die as well. So I think it's, it's got a lot of features that we feel make it applicable to the human condition. We've also looked at various metabolomic changes in the blood, from animals after they've been exposed to this injury and shown that the patterns match what people have published in blood samples from human TBI as well. We're currently exploring what the ramifications of those changes might be, but at this point, we're just simply happy that it recapitulates some of the key aspects of human TBI.
0: What aspects does it recreate well compared to which aspects does it not recreate well?
1: Begins the process with axon degeneration. Axons are some of the most highly energetically demanding structures. They're also long, fragile, and, and so it takes a lot of energy to maintain their membranes and maintain their internal structure. And so they're very susceptible to all manner of different injuries, including the forces that happen with the with a traumatic brain injury. So Axon degeneration is something that happens early in a human TBI, and that's also what happens very early in our model of, of TBI. So it begins with axon degeneration, and then we observe a characteristic decline in cognitive function, such that about two weeks after injury, the mice have a hard time forming new memories, learning tasks, and...
0: How long would that take in
1: humans? It varies on the type of injury that a human has. So, characteristically, what happens a lot, though, in people is that the initial injury starts and then things progress over time. And so uh, they continue to get worse. They can continue to get worse, not all the time, but they can continue to get worse. And that's what we see with our animals as well.
0: Do you use these three methods at the same time?
1: They all occur more or less simultaneously in our same way because the head is the head is not restrained. The body is, but the head is not. So it moves somewhat rapidly and then back into place after the the jet of air exposure.
0: And you mentioned that TBI increases the risk of other diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is the case?
1: Really important question. That's what we're trying to yep. um, study. And people don't know the answer. So it could be many different things. We've been studying this in the lab for the past few years, and we've seen a couple of things that we think might be pointing us in that direction. One is this early acetylation of the tau protein after TBI that we've shown now in this paper that you contacted me about uh, happens in both animal models and in people after TBI. So that could be an early event that predisposes the brain to potentially then develop Alzheimer's disease in the setting of proper genetic vulnerability and such. That's one thing we're studying. Another possibility that we've uh, recently published in a a different manuscript is impairment of the blood-brain barrier. So we showed that one year after this traumatic brain injury, mice have a degraded poorly functioning blood-brain barrier. And we showed that restoring the blood-brain barrier is able to stop the process of neurodegeneration. And we think that could be linked to Alzheimer's disease because breakdown of the blood-brain barrier is an important facet of Alzheimer's disease as well. In answer to your question, I don't know the answer to your question, but we're thinking that these two factors could be something that play a role.
0: Now I'll link it to your paper to do with the tau acetylation. What exactly is tau, and why did you decide on looking at the acetylation and not some other marker for TBI?
1: Uh, tau is a protein that basically functions to hold microtubules together. That's one of its main functions, and microtubules are very important in axon structure. So, modification of the tau protein has been studied extensively in Alzheimer's disease. It's it's an unusual protein in that it's incredibly highly modified by multiple forms of what's called post-translational modification. The one that's been studied the most is phosphorylation. Uh, we became interested in acetylation. It's it's simply an addition of an acetyl group to various lysine residues within the compound. And we became interested in that because we um, had seen the paper that I mentioned earlier where it, it had been identified Um, in the brains of patients with um, Alzheimer's disease. I I should also say that in that, in the publication, it was also shown that patients with uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is disorder of the brain uh, that happens with multiple injuries, that those patients also showed acetylation of tau as well. And so that's what made us think that it might be linked to the acute process after a traumatic brain injury.
0: You mentioned in the paper that there's many different types of tau acetylation. Why did you look at the two different types that you looked at and not the other type?
1: Those were the sites that had been shown to be acetylated in human Alzheimer's brain. And so those were the ones that we started with. There are actually upwards of 20 different acetylation sites all around the microtubule binding domain of the tau protein. And currently in the lab, we are uh, mutating each one of those sites to where it can not be acetylated, and then we're studying, or in an acetylation mimetic form, and then we're studying the consequences of that on the function of tau. And so we we believe that it's possible that, uh, of course, the other sites might have an impact as well.
0: Is it unique to traumatic brain injury, or is it also upregulated in other diseases?
1: It has been shown in that original paper to be present in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease, so we know that it happens that circumstance we don't know about other diseases we're currently looking we we showed that acetylation of tau from the brain can be detected in the blood and we showed that in people who have had a traumatic brain injury acetylated tau is markedly increased we also looked in people who had had uh, two other forms of head injury a subarachnoid hemorrhage or an intracranial hemorrhage in those cases acetylated tau was not detected in the blood. So there may be some degree of specificity for traumatic brain injury, um, as opposed to other brain conditions. And um, that's something that we're, we're interested in looking at. We'd be interested to know, is it a general process that is involved in neurodegeneration across multiple disorders, such as Parkinson's disease, for example, or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis? And those are just all things that we are in the process of looking at.
0: In your paper you tested two um, new your paper you tested two anti-inflammatory drugs were shown to decrease the levels why do you choose them two drugs
1: reason that we chose those two medicines are that they are unique amongst their entire class of medicines and that they inhibit the enzyme that adds the acetyl group onto tell. so those two medicines that you mentioned are uh, salicylate and diflunisal and they are members of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug class, classically used for inflammatory conditions, uh, such as rheumatoid arthritis, for example. But what had been shown by another group was that out of all the NSAIDs, salicylate and diflumazole both had this unusual ability to also inhibit the p 300 cbp acetyltransferase enzyme and that happens to be the enzyme that adds the acetyl group onto tau so we hypothesized then that if we could give those medicines to mice after a traumatic brain injury that it might be protective Mm -hmm. by virtue of blocking the acetylation of tau and that's what we found Mm
0: -hmm. and is it known how the acetylation of tau causes negative effects
1: well, yes and no. I guess like most things in science, there's a lot of stuff known, but there's still a lot of stuff to figure out. So what has been shown and, and what we verified in our animal model is that after tau becomes acetylated, there is a breakdown of a, a structure called the axon initial segment. And the axon initial segment is um, an enriched A protein-enriched area um, at the junction of where the nerve cell body gives off the axon. And one of its main functions is to sequester things either in the cell body or in the axon. Normally, tau, after it's made, is predominantly sequestered into the axon where it's needed the most. And what we observed, which other people had shown in um, cell culture models and what we verified in the animal Brain is that after tau becomes acetylated, the axon initial segment breaks down. It sort of disintegrates, if you will. And associated with that disintegration of the axon initial segment is the fact that tau is no longer questioned into the axon and actually travels into the cell body and throughout what's called the somatodendritic compartment, which is the rest of the the nerve cell. And tau is not supposed to be heavily enriched there. And so we showed then that that process is followed by axon degeneration, and we showed that if we block the processes that lead to tau acceleration, or if we go in on the other side and we increase the activity of the enzyme that takes the acetyl group off of tau, that the end result is that the axon initial segment remains intact, the axon does not degenerate, and the animals do well after an injury.
0: Does acetylated tau have a
1: normal role in the body? That's something that we mentioned in our in our, our paper as an important area of future investigation. You know, almost certainly it must have a normal role. I just think it would be strange that it didn't have any normal role at all. And the reason mm-hmm. the reason that I feel pretty confident about saying that is that there are basal levels of acetylated tau present. So it isn't that there's no acetylated tau, and then after an injury, there's a lot. There's actually a small amount of acetylated tau present at all times
0: what amount would that be compared to what the levels are normally compared to during injury large does the increase
1: we're in the process of characterizing that but um i would it would just be a, a guess based on our observations so far but it's looking like the basal levels are around 10 to 15 percent of what we see after an injury so it's not an insignificant amount so it, it's most likely i believe it is likely to have a normal physiologic role. We don't know what that is, but we are searching to find that out.
0: So does that mean you'd have to be careful if you did target acetylated tau? Because if it does have a a normal role, if you made the levels go too low, it could also be detrimental.
1: I suppose if it would remain to be seen, what is that function and, and what would be the danger of shutting it down in the setting of an injury? It is seldom that you actually could achieve a hundred percent effect of, of anything because everything in biology is in equilibrium. So it would be <clears throat> it would be unlikely to completely shut it down, but yeah you'd want to be aware of what the consequences might be if you did it. But I would say right now the the um, balance of the data favors that in the acute setting of an injury, it would be wise to uh, lower your amount of a down to slow down the neurodegenerative process.
0: Would you only be able to reduce it by drugs? Or has there been any, any research showing that foods or a certain diets or better sleep
1: can reduce
0: the amount of it?
1: There's no research on that topic right now. That's an interesting question.
0: So I would be interested in looking, this is just a hypothesis, into exercise and the levels of trauma- acetylated tau especially because traumatic brain injury does occur a lot with people who do a lot of exercise because they have a higher chance of traumatic brain injury? But could it also be because exercise is somehow affecting
1: this as well? It would need to be investigated. And in general, exercise is thought to do many good things for for brain health. We've not looked yet at whether or not exercising animals, for example, changes the basal level of acetylated tau.
0: Could the increase be a compensatory mechanism? Because of traumatic brain injury causing some change, and then the increase in this is just a positive that's thought right now, and then the increase in acetylated tau is leading to try to cover up some other decrease in a protein.
1: I'm not quite sure what do you mean by that?
0: So you said that acetylated tau has a normal functional role. Could its increase during injury be to cover up for some other damage caused to a different protein?
1: The question you're asking is could it be? Like an attempt of the brain to repair itself to compensate for, for yes. something. It's possible. Um, it it could be that, it could be a consequence of something else that's happening, and it just happens to get acetylated because other events are happening as well. At, th- at this point, it's it's not known.
0: What brain regions does this acetylated tau normally appear in?
1: We showed that it occurs in all brain regions that are exposed to the so. The injury model that we use is a global concussive injury It affects the entire brain. Um, and, and we see that acetylated tau goes up everywhere. The one region that was relatively protected, actually, which we are interested in, we don't know the answer, is the hypothalamus. We've seen in this model that the hypothalamus is often resistant to injury. It's the only region of the brain that's resisted, resistant to injury.
0: It's resistant to injury in TBI
1: model. In our model of, our animal model of TBI, we don't see damage in the hypothalamus. And we don't know, is that because there's something unique about the hypothalamus, the neurons, or the, the cells that compose it? Or is it something that is, it's anatomically shielded from the injury in some way? And we're thinking now, most likely the latter, because in this paper, we showed that if we look at mice in which they've been genetically altered to express a tau mimetic that that in in all cells in the brain that that is very damaging to the hypothalamus so it's not we don't think it's that the hypothalamus is in some way physiologically endowed with cells that are more resistant we think it's probably just a unique feature of our model that it doesn't happen to to harm the hypothalamus
0: could the hypothalamus express less tau in some way and then that could lead to less
1: yeah, we've seen no evidence of of that.
0: Regarding the two drugs that you tested, are you looking to do any further research on these drugs to find out if they can be used for people with TBI or other conditions?
1: Absolutely, we we hope to be able to investigate that. Collaborating with people who are who are studying TBI or Alzheimer's disease, the the one that I would recommend. For anybody who's interested in looking at this, is to use diflunisal because it's substantially more potent at inhibiting the um, acetyltransferase than sulcide.
0: That's the case because it has a poorer transport across the blood-brain barrier.
1: It is much harder to cross the blood-brain barrier than sulcide. But um, when it gets in there, it works much more effectively than sulcide would. You can't you, you can't get enough sulcide in the brain to make it as big an impact as you can with um, diflumazole, even though diflumazole itself is harder to get into the brain.
0: And is, it a spe- is diflumazole a specific inhibitor of acetyltransferase, or does it affect other enzymes as well?
1: They're in the class of of NSAIDs, and so they are they function that way to reduce inflammation. And it just so happens that salicylate and diflumazole also inhibit this other enzyme as well.
0: Are you planning on looking at any other drugs that can affect the acetyl transferase, or are you going to just concentrate on salsazole and diflunisal?
1: We, all of the above. We okay. the the appeal of diflunisal, salsalate but especially of diflunisal is that it's already FDA approved and and people know that it's safe. So, it's it's more readily available to patients than. A new medicine that be made. The process of making the medicine takes a long, long time. So that's the appeal is to, to see if people might be helped now with the agents that we identified. And then we are definitely interested in discovering new, potentially more potent, new chemical matter that can have the same effect. And we're also developing agents that that preserve energy levels of nerve cells. In particular, I preserve levels of an uh, energy metabolite called metabolite called NAD, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. The reason that we're interested in that is that NAD stimulates the sir 2 n one enzyme, which is the deacetylase, meaning that it's the enzyme that takes the acetyl group off of tau. And as part of this paper, we showed that if we elevate NAD levels, meaning that we prevent them from dropping after injury and we re- maintain them at their normal amount that sirtuin is able to remove acetyl groups from the tau protein, and that's also protective. So that's the other angle is we're interested in both. We're interested in the possibility of reducing the amount of acetyl groups that get added onto tau, and then we're also interested in augmenting the the ability of the acetyl group to be removed from tau. The end result is to try to decrease the overall magnitude of acetylated tau that's in the neurons.
0: What compound did you use to target that NAD? Was it genetic?
1: Uh, we did two models. We used a genetic model called WLDS mice that carry a genetic mutation that overexpresses the catalytic subunit of an enzyme that is important in NAD synthesis. And then we also used a molecule called uh, P7C3A20, which is um, a molecule that's we've widely shown preserves energy levels in nerve cells as well.
0: I guess that drug isn't currently used for treatment of
1: anything. I guess it's just that it's not a drug per se at this time. It, it's a chemical that is used as a tool in animals, but it hasn't been turned into a, a medicine.
0: In which area do you think is more open to exploration, targeting NAD or targeting other pathways? Um, equal.
1: I think they're both equally open.
0: Isn't NAD involved in many of the processes? So would you have to be quite a tight control over the process?
1: NAD is involved in many processes. And in general, um, elevating NAD or preserving it from falling is a good thing. So I think both angles on converging on tau are likely to be very helpful.
0: And regarding the other acetylated tau types, are you looking to see if any of them have any different effects in TBI?
1: We are uh, very interested in what might be the consequence of acetylation at any of the, the different sites that have been shown to be able to be acetylated in town, for sure. We're interested in how it might play a role in TBI. We're interested in how it might play a role in Alzheimer's disease. And then um, we're interested in extending that out to other models of neurodegeneration as well
0: with the acetylated tau, do you think it has the same residues have a role in any other diseases?
1: What What do you mean by the question?
0: Do you think that the acetylated tau, at these residues plays a role in other diseases such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or some other the degenerative disease? That's
1: an area of future investigation that we want to look at to see is this process of neurodegeneration that's linked to acetylated tau, is it common to other forms of neurodegenerative disease besides traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's disease? Does it happen in other conditions as well? And and we don't know the answer until we look.
0: What other areas are you looking to go to conduct research within?
1: We are interested in basically understanding how nerve cells live and die um, in the brain with the Expectation that that's going to create a discovery of new therapeutic opportunities uh, for patients.
0: So, any particular cells or brain regions that you concentrate on?
1: We usually take um, a, a, an approach. In fact, we always take an approach based on just the entire brain. So, rather than starting our initial investigations in cell culture, for example, which is a very isolated artificial system, we use the intact brain to. Conduct our studies, then we can ask more specific questions later on in cells. So we have a number of different projects that we haven't published yet, but that we're working on to study different ways in which brain health can be promoted.
0: What advice would you give to students who are interested in entering this field of research?
1: I think it's important to find a supportive mentor that that you identify with and admire. Um, because I think that that helps cultivate an atmosphere of excitement and discovery in the laboratory. And and I think that's the greatest thing about science is that you have the opportunity. It's, it's wide open. You can discover anything that you want. So I would just encourage students to find a good mentor, communicate regularly with that mentor, and then just to keep an open mind. Uh, Obviously, I think it's well known that everything in the textbooks is not 100% accurate. They're always being revised based on new discoveries. And that's that's very exciting. I mean, there's so much opportunity. So just keep an open mind. Don't feel locked into one particular technique or area of discovery, but but ask the bigger question. And what I try to encourage people to do is always keep in mind, how can this influence human health? To me, that's the highest priority is that we want the science to move in a way that's going to ultimately help people. And and so that's my advice.
0: And what advice would you give to younger students, so students who are still in high school or uh, private school, who are still deciding on what exact job or research area they want to go into? Not
1: to be intimidated by science, not to feel like it's an unattainable area or that it's very difficult. Like everything else, you just need to learn, you just need to learn the foundation. And so I would encourage younger students, really students of any age, to ask what they don't understand. I think that actually applies to any field, but I know it's extremely important in science. So if they feel that there's something that they're not quite grasping, and and other people seem to have already gotten it, you know, take the time to understand what that is. Build that solid foundation so that you Continue to move onward and upward in a productive, solid way.
0: This is a comment I think for many of the scientists that I've interviewed have told. I think it's something—it's like a misconception that's commonly out there that science is a complicated subject. When in truth, it's just an interesting subject which is open to everyone.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think almost any topic can be very complicated, but also not. You just have to learn. You just have to learn uh, the basics. I I would hope that young people would see the opportunities in science. It's truly a joy to be able to discover new things that people haven't known before. Very exciting. And I think that that isn't often stressed enough. And and I, I worry sometimes that a lot of young, very, very smart, bright men and women are picking other fields because they are kind of pushed away from science for some reason. And I think that's unfortunate because I think. It can be a very rewarding field and it's extremely important. So I, I hope that people will keep an open mind and continue to consider it as a possible career.
0: Are there any resources that you can recommend for people that want to learn more about the area of research that you conduct come to research within?
1: Uh, other than your podcast?
0: Yeah, other than my podcast. <laughs> I don't want to be self-promoting.
1: I think in general, just reading at, the, um, all, at all levels. Don't be afraid to, to, even if you're at an early stage in your career, don't be afraid to download the paper or email the author and you get a copy of the paper. Don't be afraid to ask them questions.
0: By early yeah. stage, what do you mean? An undergraduate or a uh, researcher?
1: Or? I, I, I would say at whatever stage somebody is interested in something. So if you, for example, my paper, you, maybe there's a... There was a news story about it. Possibly, somebody at any stage might have read that story and said, "Hey, this is interesting." And then they they could go on to the site and they could download the paper. And my email is right there. If they have something they're interested in. They should just and they want to understand it. Just email me, and and I'll write back. Just like you emailed me, and I and I write back. Yeah, and now that, we're doing this podcast. I I've realized that like it's something
0: I worried about before thinking. Oh, it's it's a researcher. I can't really contact them; they're really busy. But I, I've realized that researchers love talking about their research. If you have questions
1: for them, I I love it when people are interested in learning, and and I want to encourage this. And I think that's common amongst most researchers. And so it, it would surprise me greatly if anybody would would write to a at any level would write to a scientist, and that scientist would not write back to them in a nice, considerate, supportive way. It, it's just. the the way people are. So I would encourage young people to just pursue their interest in it.
0: Now, a few more questions just about you in general, because I want to emphasize the fact that neuroscientists do more than just their research. So what do you spend your time doing apart from research?
1: Uh, Professionally or or personally? I am married and I have uh, twin boys who are in high school right now. And so I enjoy spending a lot of time with them. We used to really enjoy traveling a lot. And we're hoping to be able to get back to that when things are, are safer after the <laughs> pandemic is under better control. I, I'm a runner. I, I run regularly. Just like normal person. <laughs> How often do you run? Is it set?
0: Do you go to 10-kilometer or races or? Mars,
1: well, well, yeah, I used to, and now I have done them for the past year, just virtually. So we sign up, and then you just run on your own, and you turn yeah. in your stuff. <laughs> so, oh, that's, it's that's, fun!
0: That's like, dedication. If there's one scientific question you could answer, what question would it be?
1: I would want to know what is the reason why aging is the common factor amongst all these neurodegenerative conditions. Um, I've always wondered why you're born with a mutation that's going to make you more likely to get Alzheimer's disease, for example. Why does it take 60 years to develop it? Mm -hmm. What are the changes that are happening? So, And when does it initially start to develop? Chances are, I think it's pretty well accepted now, that the process starts very, very early. But why don't we display the symptoms until much, much later? What is that happening? That's what I would like to understand.
0: Because whenever they mention aging, that just makes me think, I think it's... Just we don't understand because it has to be down yeah. to something. It can't mm-hmm. just be aging. There's some process that's leading to the disease occurring. It's just that we don't understand it yet. So we just put the label of aging. For, for now, like that's
1: now. the best that we can do. I mean, that, that's the way most things start is they end with the empirical description of the process. And then as one begins to understand the process better, you continue to refine your mm-hmm. understanding of it. That, that's kind of the way... Science and medicine have evolved. Do you think that's
0: because the multiple different factors? For example, neurogenerative diseases, because that's the area I know a lot about. There's inflammation, is seems to be a clear, clear um, role. Glucose control seems to play a clear role. Lipid control, there's many other um, factors that seem to play a role. Could it be that all of them could separately cause the disease? It's just that aging can lead to. Any one of these five, six, or seven different processes going wrong.
1: You're asking an enormous question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <I> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so again, it's I think it's just important to keep an open mind and, and keep chipping away steadily at the things that we can answer and, and to push the field forward. So it's if I had to bet, I would bet that it's multiple factors that converge on increasing people to be pushed to a certain point where they then are in the realm of manifesting these symptoms of disease, but it's going to be different for every disease. It's going to be different for every person. Uh, There's, there's a lot to be discovered and and we don't know the answer.
0: Do you think that traumatic injury, traumatic brain injury can be reversed? Do you think it'll always be, or do you think the best that can be done is halting the disease at
1: a certain point? I do think it can be reversed. Uh, We, um, recently published a paper uh, before this paper that you contacted me about in the proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, um, USA, showing that if we delayed treatment in mice until one year after their injury, that we could then reverse the neurodegenerative process and restore their ability to have normal cognitive behavior. So that was very exciting. I think people have often thought that that wouldn't be the case, that you would need to treat either very acutely right after the traumatic brain injury or after that, the damage is there and and can't be undone. And so I do think that there's a lot of potential to reverse the problems that happen after TBI.
0: How long did it take to develop a successful cure for something like TBI or other neurodegenerative diseases?
1: Again, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows. I know that a lot of people are trying. I think recently there's been a big push to look More broadly than the amyloid hypothesis, which has dominated the field, for example, in Alzheimer's disease. I think people are now realizing that that hypothesis, while undoubtedly amyloid probably plays a role in some process of the Alzheimer's disease, it's not the whole answer, at least from a therapeutic perspective. And so I'm encouraged to see that people are looking more broadly at different ways to help nerve cells survive and function better. I think that's going to accelerate the field. How long it will take? I don't know. But I I do want to reiterate that we should have hope and we should expect and it should be our standard that we are going to solve this problem. I think that for too long, people have just said, no, oh, you can't. You get Alzheimer's disease. Oh, that's what you get when you're old. It doesn't have to be that way. I don't think that it should have to be that way. And I don't think it will have to be that way. I believe that we will find a way to prevent it. I think we will find a way to uh, treat it also once people have it. And I think it's just that gets back to what we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, which is that the field of brain health is far behind the field of medicine with respect to all the other organ systems. So I just think brain health needs to catch up.
0: Yeah. And Do you think a treatment will involve um, drugs or interventions such as a certain exercise plan or nutrition plan?
1: It's gonna be a combination of both. Mm-hmm. And I think it's well known the field for all diseases, basically. Healthy living reduces the severity and in some cases avoids the occurrence altogether of certain diseases. Those same diseases also can be treated with different medicines. And so I think just like every other organ system, the brain is also going to prove to benefit from a combination of Good diet, good sleep, healthy exercise, productive social interaction, mental health, and as well as medicines um, as needed. I I think it's all of the above. I don't think it will ever be just one or the other.
0: But I've got another question. What current book are you
1: reading at this moment in time? (laughs) What current book am I reading? I just got this right here. Uh, Range Range. by David Epstein. Oh, okay. And I haven't started reading it. I, I, it just came in the mail today. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, it was recommended to me by several people. And I see why it, it, on the front here, it says, why generalists triumph in a specialized world. Uh-huh. And I like that phrase. I haven't read the book, so I can't speak about what the book talks about. But in general, it speaks to what I think is important in science, which is to uh, a look at the entire picture. Mm-hmm. Look at how is this going to affect human health? When you're looking at the brain, don't just think about just the brain. Think about how does the brain interact with the rest of the body. Because everything is intertwined. And when we become too highly focused and specialized in one area, we have there's a risk of missing the, the bigger picture and making the the real impact. Thanks for coming
0: on the podcast to talk with me. It's been great talking about your research and all the life in general. And thank you for your time.
1: Thank you. And good luck with your podcast.
0: Summary. I have always been interested in Alzheimer's disease, but I never knew that the third largest cause of Alzheimer's disease was TBI. But TBI just showed that damage over a long period of time will eventually lead to bad consequences. That is usually the case. Think of diabetes as an example of damage from an unhealthy diet. TBI is an example of physical damage. This links in nicely to our discussion of what exactly aging is. I think both of us agreed that aging is the buildup of damage over time. Whenever I hear the word aging, it just makes me think that we don't really know what it is, do we? But that is one of the greatest problems, aging. We need to figure out what exactly it is. But it's so complicated because our body, over our lifetime, is put under so many stresses and strains and it's difficult to pinpoint the exact cause which leads to a certain disease. It could always be the case that there are many causes, so therefore we might need varied interventional programs to help deal with the problems. We'll have to see what the research says, but hopefully, either way, we will find something that is useful for patients. With traumatic brain injury, Dr. Andrew Piper and his team showed that isolated tau can be used as a marker for TBI. Currently, it's not known what acetylated tau does, but Andrew Pieper thinks I has a normal physiological role. Everything in the body does, what would be the point of having it otherwise? A future link between TBI and Alzheimer's is that acetylated tau has been shown to increase in both. Furthermore, inhibiting the acetylated tau, they using NSAIDs, which are drugs in the same family as aspirin. These drugs, Acted through increasing the activity of C300, which is just an enzyme. And these drugs are called salsazate or diphluonazole. I love the sound of them names. Salsazate especially, even though it's hard to pronounce, because it sounds like a magical kingdom to me. But it actually is a very effective drug. The part of the paper that I did like the most was a section looking at human data showing that increased acetylated tau in the human brain is further augmented in AD patients with a history of TBI. And patients with TBI or Alzheimer's disease who took the P300 inhibitors, which are the drugs I mentioned earlier, had decreased levels of acetylated tau and decreased chances of getting AD and TBI. However, this data is correlative. I always like it when they repeat the experiments to further verify in humans in some way. We also explained the mouse model they use for TBI research, which is quite complex to me, requires three different methods to create, showing that researchers in the TBI field really do want to recreate TBI to the best of their abilities. As I mentioned earlier, I was going to read papers outside of my topic, and I've read four interesting papers the best one being about the microbiome of bees. I was a beekeeper for a while, so I do have a fascination with them. The paper showcases that 98% of the good bacteria in bees is similar between bees. However, there is still a variation and seems to be quite important. If you are someone who wants to come on the podcast or you have a question you want to contact me with, that's the end of the 5th episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are someone who wants to come on the podcast, or you have a question you want to contact me with, you can send it through the Twitter or LinkedIn accounts, or you can email me through brainexplained at outlook.com. I'll put the links in the description. I also want to thank the British Neuroscience Association for providing me with the funds to buy the technical equipment and advice on the organisation of the podcast. Don't forget to check out their website. They have a section with my podcast on as well. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss the latest episode. And definitely check out the links if you're interested in exploring any of these areas of research further. Thank you for listening and I look forward to talking to you next month where we explore another fascinating area of neuroscience.